let's ask God to help us understand his word. Uh, Our gracious uh, Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you speak. Uh, You give us a word uh, that both warns us of the consequences of our rebellion against you and offers us life. Uh, We pray in your mercy that we would hear your offer of life this morning and believing you would turn to you and know peace with you. Help me to speak your word truthfully and clearly in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, We encounter lots of warnings in life and there is nothing wrong and everything right in giving warnings of real dangers. Uh, Some, especially where act and consequence are close, we obey. Uh, Very few of us, for example, play in electricity substations or make a habit of drinking labelled poisons. Uh, That's a hard habit to acquire, let me say. But others, especially where there is a kind of gap between behaviour and consequence and especially where we are being warned to get something we want to do, we enjoy doing other warnings, we find harder to heed. We may even find reasons not to act on those warnings. Take smoking. The health risks of smoking are legion and well-known. They're even advertised on cigarette packets. And you go to the Department of Health website and it will tell you that, amongst other things, smoking causes most lung cancers, is the main cause of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, a major cause of cardiovascular disease, causes type 2 diabetes, and yes, it does damage the eye and can lead to macular degeneration, and that's just a sample. Yet people still take up and continue smoking. And they have reasons for not heeding the clear warnings about the health risks of smoking. And I heard a few when I was a doctor. My grandfather smoked a packet a day and lived to be 86. Oh, I'm fitting well. It hasn't done me any harm. I like it. Oh, it's too hard to stop. And that's true. It can be hard because it's physically and psychologically addictive. But there is help for that. Smokers find reasons not to change behaviour in the face of clear warnings of its danger. Now, throughout Ezekiel, whom the Lord appointed as a watchman, someone whose role it is to give warnings of approaching danger, the Lord's been giving warnings to the Jewish exiles in Babylon, warnings of judgment on their sin, warnings supported by the Lord's description of what was happening and would happen to Jerusalem. Now, the purpose of those warnings, like the purpose of most warnings, was to prevent harm, was to preserve life. And here in Ezekiel 18, God, through Ezekiel, is again warning the exiles to change their behaviour in the light of coming judgment. Therefore, I will judge you, every one of you, according to his ways. Repent and turn. And the purpose of the warning is clear that the Israelites would live and not die. Why will you die? Turn and live, says the Lord. But the people were finding reasons not to act on God's warnings. Uh, We heard one of them in verse 2. The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. A common proverb, proverb quoted also, we know, from Jeremiah by the people of Jerusalem. Now, it might sound a bit cryptic, and we're going to unpack this excuse not to act in a moment, for it's still one that's made today. 
although in different terms. But before we do, so we don't miss the wood for the trees, let's pause and think about the wonder of the God who warns and the wonder of what is offered to those who heed the warning. You see, we have this chapter because having given repeated clear warnings, shown the danger they faced if their continued rebellion, if they continued their rebellion to be real, the Lord now reasons with the exiles to persuade them to act on those warnings. He doesn't force them. He doesn't walk away from them, fed up with their stubbornness. He, the creator of the universe, the source of their and our every breath, patiently addresses their arguments for not doing anything, even their criticism of him. And he urges them, as you've heard, why will you die? He entreats them to change and live. Now, in chapter 16, it was amazing to realise that the holy God humbled himself to speak the language of the gutter to those in the gutter to help them see the seriousness of their sin. And here again we see the Lord's gracious humility, reasoning with with Israel like a parent with a stubborn four-year-old. And he doesn't do this to win the argument, but to win to life people who deserve death. As some people think that because God warns very clearly of his just anger at their sin, that the Lord is somehow down on them, anti them, can't wait to wallop them. And nothing could be further from the truth. Those warnings, those declarations of certain judgment are given because he is for them, for life, wanting our good. If you were partying on the dance floor and and the policewoman came in and said, you've got to leave the floor immediately because we've had a tip-off about a bomb in the building, you don't think, kill Joy. Actually, no, you think she's spoken to save your life. God speaks for life. And in Ezekiel 18, we should recognise the wonder of the life offered repeatedly in this chapter, to those who heed the warning. You know, this life starts being mentioned, verse 9, in a courtroom context. And so it's the life the righteous will receive when they're brought to judgment and measured against the standard of God's just law. So this life is not just being spared death, which is the sentence of lawbreakers. No, it's life in the covenant, in a committed and enduring relationship with the living God. And this is life which enjoys peace with God, enjoys in that relationship his care and protection. And as the book goes on, this life is revealed, chapter 36 is new life, where people are enabled by God's spirit to live God's way in God's presence. Chapter 37 is resurrection life. Chapter 38, 39, it's life under the Lord's protection, free from any fear. In the end, It is life in the new heaven and earth, life without death or sin, any marring or pain. This is the alternative the Lord is offering to those who will heed his warning, the alternative to the death they deserve in judgment. So what's the reason the exiles give for not engaging with what Ezekiel's preaching, not responding to the Lord's call? Well, already in exile, 
uh, already in exile, they didn't have the option of saying that, you know, things aren't real or serious. And they didn't really doubt the Lord's existence, so they might have had doubts about his power. Let me say, neither should you doubt the existence of the God who speaks. Now, plainly, if you think the Lord's imaginary, you won't pay attention to what he says. But in the face of the evidence, that dismissal of the Lord looks too convenient. What evidence? Oh, the evidence of creation and information, rich creation. (laughs) That information didn't come about randomly. And the universal constants, the information formation, foundation, set the parameters for what is. They're not produced by it. There's the evidence of creation and, oh, there's the evidence of the fulfilment of prophecy in Jewish history. For example, the fulfilment of Ezekiel and Jeremiah's prophecies of the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. Oh, the evidence of the ministry and especially the resurrection of Jesus and the subsequent growth of his church. And yes, the evidence of the experience of believers. There are lots of reasons to believe. But Ezekiel's audience do believe. So why are they not responding? Well, it's this proverb. The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. You see, Ezekiel's audience are saying, we're in this mess, not because of what we have done, but because of what previous generations have done. We're living with the consequences of the actions of others, not our own actions. Now, there's two ways the proverb can be understood. Firstly, a fatalistic way. They're saying... We are not to blame, but what can you do? This is just the way the universe works. Our lives are determined by the actions of others, by where we find ourselves in the flow of history. It's the fault of our parents or our genes or our education. Ezekiel, you can preach till you are blue in the face, but we didn't create the present circumstance. We can't change it. We can't change our fate. The other way of taking the proverb is as a way of suggesting that the Lord's been unfair in judging them, that they're lumbered with a judgment that the previous generation provoked. It wasn't us, they're saying, but them, and you shouldn't be punishing us. Now, there may well be some of that alleging unfairness to God, but as you heard, verse 19 suggests that this audience accept that children should suffer for the acts of their parents. They ask... Why should not the son suffer for the iniquity of the father? Either way, this proverb is a way of avoiding responsibility for what's happened and avoiding responsibility for acting now in the present, an excuse for doing nothing, because in their view, there's nothing they can do. And it's quite modern, isn't it? We are not to blame. We're caught up in a system of inexorable cause and effect. (coughs) Even our thinking and choices are the product of electrochemical processes and we are just products of random material forces. (coughs) Nothing we do will change things. Now, what can we say to that? I mean, haven't his audience got some justification for blaming the parents as a general observation the decisions of parents do affect their children's lives your parents decide to move to Melbourne and like my children you grow up in Melbourne and you get the lockdown wasn't the result of their choice but ours 
And in the second commandment, forbidding idolatry, doesn't it say that God will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me? And hasn't Ezekiel himself contributed to this view, outlining in chapter 16 how the actions of previous generations have brought Israel to this desperate point? But the Lord's response is vigorous. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. People aren't judged and condemned for the sins of others, for the sins of their parents. They're judged for their own sins. And the Lord makes clear the basis for individual responsibility. Each person owes their life to God. All souls are mine. All lies. And each person is accountable to the Lord, their maker. He's the creator and he is the judge of each person. So how does this clear individual responsibility relate to Exodus 20? Well, the third and fourth generation describes the Israelite household. All members of the household are caught up in the idolatry of the head and share in the consequences of that unless they can separate themselves from it, as all families share in the consequences of parental choices. But judgment under the law had always been individual. Deuteronomy 24, Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. And we see both of these things in our own society, don't we? Let's say somebody's parents are drug dealer. Well, there will be consequences for the children whether it's living with fear of authority or suffering disruption of family life and poverty when the parent is arrested. But the child won't be charged and sent to jail by the courts. People are judged for their own crimes. So children do enjoy or suffer the consequences of parental decision, but people are always judged for their own actions and choices, and the Lord has been talking about judgment in Ezekiel 18. In fact, he tells a three-generational story to illustrate the truth of what he said. The people are judged according to what each individual has done. Yes, a grandfather, a son, who then in turn is the father of a son, the grandson of the first. Now, the first generation is righteous, verse 9. He walks in my statutes and keeps my rules by acting faithfully. He is righteous. He shall surely live, declares the Lord. Now, righteousness is living according to the standards of the covenant, conforming to the expected and agreed norms of the relationship between God and his people. And as you heard in the reading uh, from verse 5 on, this righteousness is attractive. And most of it concerns our relationship to others, how we treat them in all areas of life, especially those less powerful than ourselves. And as you heard it being read, hopefully you thought, that's the kind of person I'd like for my neighbour. But he has a son, and this son you would not want for your neighbour. He does the exact opposite of his father. He's violent, a shedder of blood. And no one is arguing that 
this son should be spared because his father was righteous. In fact, the verdict is clear. He's done all these abominations. He shall surely die. His blood shall be upon himself. That is, he is responsible for his own destruction by his own choices. And then we hear that that man in turn has a son and this son makes a choice. He sees all the sins, verse 14, that his father has done. He sees and does not do likewise. He makes a different decision. He lives a different life and he gets, verse 17, a different verdict. He obeys my rules, walks in my statutes. He shall surely live. It's clear, isn't it? The soul who sins will die. And that is righteous, God acting according to the covenant. But there's an objection, verse 19. They say, why should not the son suffer for the iniquity of the father? Now, this continuing objection is a desperate attempt to avoid responsibility for acting, for accepting responsibility for the consequences of their decisions, accepting responsibility for themselves before God's judgment. And it actually just shows how empty their excuse is. I mean, you can hear, you really want this son who does the right thing to suffer so that you can excuse yourself? And let me say, the son probably has suffered with a father like that. But what's at issue is not the context and societal consequences of his upbringing, but the judgment of God. And God is clear. He will not be judged for his father's sins. He will receive what his own behaviour deserves. Verse 19, when the son has done what is just and right and has been careful to observe all my statutes, he shall surely live. And the Lord repeats and emphasises his point. Verse 20, the soul whose sins shall die, the son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Each of us individually is responsible for what happens to us in God's judgment. God is not overwhelmed by numbers. He does deal with us individually. Our standing in the judgment is not determined by actions of others but by our own. And our behaviour is not determined. Like the second and third persons in the story, a not uncommon story, is it, of children choosing differently from their parents, we can choose. And we are responsible. We can't blame others for where we stand in God's judgment. We can't excuse ourselves or deny that God's treatment of us is just in giving us what our actions deserve. We are responsible. Now, on the one hand, that's liberating, isn't it? We have real choice. But on the other, when they looked at their lives, when we look at our lives, it could leave us without hope. We, no one else, is responsible for our actions and we'll receive that judgment. So now the Lord says that just as where we stand in the judgment is not determined by the actions of others, our parents, our culture, where we stand in the judgment need not be determined by our own past. There is a way to life even for those who know that they have done wrong. 
But if a wicked person turns away from all his sins that he has committed and keeps all my statutes and does what is just and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die. None of the transgressions that he's committed shall be remembered against him for the righteousness that he's done, he shall live. Now notice God speaks of a wicked person. So we should be in no doubt about this person's status Like the wicked son of verses 10 to 13, this is a person who fully deserves death. Now think about that. God's talking about hope for the wicked, those who practice disregarding God, doing the exact opposite of what he commands so that they can please themselves. Is that you? Have you been thinking there was no hope for you when you met God? Well, verses 21 to 22 says there is hope if you will repent. And we have a picture of repentance here. If he turns, repentance is turning away from sin. Oh, and keeps. The repentant person turns back to confess the Lord is king and commits to doing his will. You see, repentance does show in change behaviour. And repentance keeps on living in that relationship, doing what is just and right. So repentance is doing a U-turn, changing the direction of your life from pleasing yourself to pleasing God and keeping on going in that direction. And what does God do for that person who repents? They will live, verse 22. Their sins will not be remembered. Never be called to mind again to be punished. They will live. Why? Well, verse 23, because of who the Lord is. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? The Lord is someone who is merciful and gracious. He is full life, not death. Death gives him no pleasure. Rather, as Jesus taught, he has joy in sinners who repent. But they don't live because they have earned forgiveness by their repentance. The wicked person who repents is saved by relying on the Lord to be who he has said he is. Salvation is being saved by faith, not by our own works. But just as the wicked can change, so we are warned, the righteous can change. When a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice, shall he live? No, he will Die. There's a warning against complacency here. None of the righteous deeds he's done shall be remembered. But it's more. This is a warning against thinking we can save ourselves by our own works. You see, the complacent person puts their trust in themselves and what they've done. This person thinks that because of their past good deeds or some decision they've made in their past, they'll be okay. They have in their mind bought God's favour, put God in their debt by what they've done and so now they can take God for granted and get on doing whatever they like, living to please themselves. But the outcome is death. Now there are two ways here, aren't there? One is the way of life, the other is the way of death. And to help us to see the difference, ask, uh, see the difference uh, let's ask, where is each person's trust placed? The person who turns back to God, the person who lives, is putting their faith in God. They're not even putting their faith in their own repentance, but in the Lord to be merciful. And then they are living a life of repentance and faith in the Lord. So their trust is in the Lord always, not in themselves. 
Oh, the person who dies is putting their faith in themselves, in their own deeds. There's no repentance and faith there, no relationship with the Lord. Their trust is in themselves. One way leads to life, the other to death. Where are you putting your faith, your trust, to find life on the day of judgment? But that there is life for the wicked who repent and trust God is great good news, isn't it? Your own past rebellion need not determine where you stand with God, whether you can find life in relationship with your creator, life now and forever. And that is because of who the Lord is and he does not change. He still desires life. So you can choose even now to turn back to the living and just God. But there is an objection from Ezekiel's audience Yet you say the way of the Lord is not just. Now just here is not the word that's used elsewhere for righteous. It has more the sense of correct in order. And so these people are suggesting that the Lord's action is inconsistent, arbitrary, lacking in principle. On the one hand, they say you say you'll judge the wicked, give them what they deserve, and on the other that the wicked person who turns back, their sins won't remember. The objection suggests that deep down they see themselves as basically righteous and it's actually still another way of avoiding responsibility for their own judgment by suggesting that in the Lord's eyes how you live doesn't really matter. But actually the Lord is very clear. Verse 26, people die for their own sin. No one else is to blame. And people live, verse 27 to 28, because of God's mercy, a mercy they come to know through repentance and faith. Because he considered and turned away from all the transgressions that he has done, he shall surely live. Now this is not arbitrary or unjust. This is exactly what the Lord had said he would do in his covenant with Israel. At the end of the covenant renewal in Deuteronomy, after Moses had been through the consequences of breaking the covenant, the Lord had gone on to say, when you see all all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and you return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today, with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy upon you. God has always promised mercy to those who repent. And this is entirely consistent with his character as revealed in Exodus 34 when Israel had sinned in worshipping the golden calf. His character praised in Psalm 145. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Good to all, his mercy is over all that he has made. He shows mercy because he is merciful. But perhaps you sense a deeper inconsistency. How can God, who's committed to upholding justice, be merciful to those who deserve punishment? How can this God who's on the side of life bring life to those who deserve death? And we know that the full answer for that had to wait until Jesus came. Jesus, God with us. 
And in Jesus, we see the full extent of God's commitment to life, to give life. In the context of God again appealing to sinners to come and find peace with God, the Apostle Paul says, verse 21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now Paul is talking of Jesus and his death on the cross. There, though Jesus was innocent, he died in the place of sinners, people like you and me. Jesus was made a sacrifice for sin, taking the punishment we deserve so that in him we could be reckoned righteous. That is, here upon our lives, the verdict, Jesus, who always obeyed God, deserved to hear on his life. He kept all God's law. He's righteous. He lives. And in him, trusting him, we also are reckoned righteous and live. God so wanted to give sinners life that he gave his son in death in our place. God's not arbitrary. He's not unjust in giving mercy to those who repent. It's what he promised to do. It's the expression of his character. It's the achievement of his son. It's actually the hearer's way, the objector's way that doesn't make sense is not correct. Their refusal to act and turn from sin, their refusal to heed the warning doesn't make sense and so the Lord makes his final appeal. Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, declares the Lord. The Lord's clear, every individual will be judged for their own deeds. You can't blame others for the outcome of your judgment. The Lord knows all the circumstances of your life, all your thoughts, all your motivation. He knows all the ways others might have sinned against you just as he knows your sin. His judgment will be just and God will treat you as your deeds deserve. And God knows that he is speaking to those who deserve death, whether speaking to Israelites or to us this morning. Yet even as he declares the certainty of judgment, he calls us to repent. He says, repent and turn away from all your transgressions, lest your iniquity be your ruin. He calls us to turn back to him and find life. The Lord presents you with a choice. Trust in yourself, your own goodness, or to turn back and trust his mercy. And in the call to make a new heart, a new spirit, he makes clear that repentance starts in the will. It's not just some change in external behaviour and outward conformity to moral standards. It starts with confessing God as our rightful king in the willing, thinking core of our being. It starts with saying that from now on, God's Son, the Lord Jesus, directs my life. And as he calls people to repent, he appeals to them to trust him, to trust that he is the God who is for life and wants to give them life. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord. So turn and plea and live. It's an impassioned plea. The God who rightly exposes your sin speaks of the just judgment your sin deserves wants you to live. Do you believe that? 
Now, don't think that that's something that God only speaks to the Jews in exile in Babylon. He speaks it now, doesn't he? In the gospel of his son. After speaking of Jesus' death, the apostle continued, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain, not to receive the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection in vain. Now's the favourable time. Now is the day of salvation. God is still appealing to you. So why will you die? If you die, if you are eternally condemned in God's just judgment, it will be because of your decision, your decision not to listen to the gracious, merciful God. Now, now I've been uh, told uh, from time to time that speaking so bluntly of sin and judgment and even hell is rude and negative, and especially, I'm told, at this time. And I've had to ask, why does that kind of criticism find no emotional traction with me? Is it because I'm unfeeling and unsympathetic, I thought? Or is it because I'm just doggedly but cheerlessly faithful to the text which clearly speaks of sin and judgment? No, I thought it's actually because God brought me to life through conviction of judgment. I can remember as an 11-year-old knowing God would judge me and that I deserve condemnation, the hell of eternal separation from him. I knew that. But the same word of God that brought me conviction of that also told me he would forgive me if I turned back to him. And I found, I found then and I've since found that nothing is better, nothing more comforting, nothing that gives you, gives you greater confidence in the present, nothing that gives you a surer hope than being a sinner reconciled to the living God through the death of his son, knowing that you are saved undeservedly by his generous mercy. You see, in bringing me to life by conviction of judgment, I know that God speaks these hard words of judgment, speaks them clearly and repeatedly because he is merciful and gracious to sinners, to undeserving people, to stubborn rebels, because he is for life. He has shown that in giving his son to give life. So if you have not yet turned to God, know you will come into judgment. Give up your excuses for not listening to his warning. Accept responsibility for your sin. Acknowledge that you deserve condemnation. No one has forced you to lie or steal or lust to speak cruelty or to a contemptuous rejection of God. You did it because you willed to do it. So stop blaming others or blaming God and hear God say, why will you die? Hear him call you to turn back and find peace with him by trusting him, trusting that he's given his son in death to give you life. Call out to him. Do it and let us know. And if you're a believer, delight in your good, just and merciful God, the Almighty who stoops to persuade, who is so generous, so determined to give life that he gives the life of his beloved son in death 
to rescue us from death. And don't be embarrassed into not speaking of judgment. Don't believe the lie that you're somehow doing people a disservice by warning them of it or judging them or being unsympathetic to their situation when you tell them that God will judge them justly. You're speaking like our God who speaks of judgment to give them life through repentance and faith in the King, the Lord Jesus, and that life, and hopefully you know it for yourself, is wonderful. To be at peace with him, to call the living God your Father, to know that you are forgiven and to know that at the last day you will rise. So be like your God. Argue with their unbelief. Persuade patiently but passionately. Say, why would you die and mean it? Because they don't need to. They could turn and trust Jesus. Be passionate in your appeal, knowing that death certainly awaits all sinners. But God is for life, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, and will certainly show mercy to all who turn back to him as he has shown mercy to us. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, move us, we pray, from our complacency to be more like you, to be people who long that others find life and not death for their sin, to be people who are willing to argue and persuade, to be people who are willing to be passionate in appealing to those they know are going to death to turn back and find life through trusting the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray, sustain us ourselves, not in trusting in ourselves, but in trusting in you, the merciful and gracious God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.